0: Genesis 11, 1 through 6, reads in the ESV as follows. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said one to another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bit them for mortar. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them.
1: I'm the other Randy. It's a delight to see all of you here this morning. What a beautiful Sunday morning it is. We appreciate the presence of every single one of you, and especially if you're visiting with us we want you to know that you're our honored guest. And then in addition to those who are here in the building today, by the way, it's an it's a interesting phenomenon. I haven't seen folks sitting down front uh, quite this close. Uh, you're kind of crowding me. <laughs> no, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to see you sitting down front, and I haven't seen that in a little over a year. Uh, in addition to, to you being here this morning, we've got uh, thousands joining us online. Okay, that is an exaggeration. I did read, though, recently that exaggerations are up like a million percent over this time of last year. <laughs> and we're delighted all of you are here joining us for worship this morning. Um, those of you who know Mia and me in our tenure here at the University Church know that for 15 years of our, our preaching life, we lived in Gwinnett County on the east side of Atlanta, about seven minutes from Stone Mountain. And... Uh, I'm mentioning that because uh, when we first moved there, and I would drive by that mountain every day on my way to the office and then back again in the in the afternoon, that uh, that that mountain was just overwhelming. I mean, I'd drive by and I was kind of dangerous driving because I was kind of locked in on the mountain, and that lasted about six months. And after that, I really didn't notice it again. In fact, I, I told Mia I've kind of taken the mountain for granted. I was wondering if you're ever going to catch up, (laughs) and 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 I hope that doesn't happen when we walk into the church building. We've been having a a theme for the university church for about the last five or six years, and on the walls you can see our theme for this year, and that's to win one in twenty one. So we're really trying to focus on our evangelism and our soul winning, being soul conscious, uh, looking for someone that we might be able to lead to the Lord, and I hope that you're you're taking that very seriously. And that you don't just come in every Sunday and see these posters on the wall and think, well, there they are still. Uh, I I hope that these will be a a weekly reminder to you that we are trying to and exercising uh, every ability that we have in order to be a soul-winning church. And I hope that you're thinking of someone, if you haven't already, that you can uh, share the gospel with, you can plant the seed of God's word in their hearts. And John chapter 4 verse 35 is a very interesting passage that I want to look at in just a moment. But before I look at the content of that particular verse, I, I want to mention the fact that in my estimation, and I'm, I'm noting it as my judgment, I, I believe that uh, the greatest challenge that we have in growing the Lord's church and, and seeing men and women added to the kingdom on a daily basis is those two little words, we can. So much of it is mental. It's an understanding and attitude that we have that we are constantly on the lookout for someone that we might be able to influence for Christ looking for opportunities that we might be able to say a word for Jesus when we contact people, whether it's in a store, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's in our own families, or whatever context of life, we're, that we are soul conscious, and that we're always looking for those kinds of opportunities. Jesus wanted his early disciples to always, always have that awareness. We know from, from John chapter 4, verse 35, because that's where he said, Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. You know, sometimes when we are in classes about soul winning or we're talking about evangelism, we we talk about gospel-hardened hearts and and even gospel-hardened regions of the country where people are just, just not very receptive to the gospel message. And so when we think about that, and we look at John four thirty five, where Jesus is talking about, listen, the fields are already white to harvest. Don't you wish that you knew where that place was that Jesus was describing there? I'll tell you something. I know where it is. It's Montgomery, Alabama. There are people in this city. There are people in your community that would be hungry to hear the gospel if only we would share it with them. And I hope, again, that we are looking this year in particular for opportunities to be able to influence others for Christ. Now, you may not be able to sit down at the kitchen table and open your Bible and lead someone into the baptistry. You you may not have that capability. As my friend Harold Taylor used to say, some people can't evangelize at that level if they had a gun held to their head. Don't worry, we're not going to do that. But by the same token, I'm, I'm truly convinced that there is some way that every one of us can be a soul winner. There is something that we can do to lead someone a little bit closer to the cross. And and so here's another firm, firm conviction that I hold that I want to share with you, and that is simply this. The world can do without anything except the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, a thousand years from now, what difference will anything else make except whether or not we have been receptive to and we've shared the gospel with others? You take away anything else in a thousand years from now, it won't make any difference what difference will all of these vast technological advances make? I'm telling you that, the, that in, in the ultimate, the only thing that will be worth anything is our own spiritual preparation and trying to prepare others for that time when they too will stand before God and give an account I want to share a couple of general principles about soul winning and, and growing the church this morning. And then I want to look at the Old Testament passage that Brother Randy read from a moment ago. And, and, I, and we've looked at this, this lesson before. I, I know that. So if you're thinking, hey, you've already preached this lesson, I, I still think it's apropos to be able to think about these things. And I, I want to refresh your course this morning on, on this passage. And so that's where we're going to be turning back to Genesis 11 if you want to keep your finger there. The first general principle regarding soul winning is simply this. We need to walk by faith and, and, and not by sight when it comes to our awareness of those around us and their need for the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 5 or 7, that's exactly what Paul said. Let us walk, we walk by faith and not by sight. And it's so imperative, I think, it's so important that we do exactly that. I think the temptation sometimes is to run the church like we would run a Madison Avenue business. You know, strictly by looking at the debits and the assets, the X's and the O's and the pluses and the minuses. And and all of those things are important. And and by the way, for the record, I am not suggesting that our leaders who use the funds that you generously contribute weekly, that they be fiscally irresponsible. I'm saying just the opposite of that. When when I say what I'm about to say, they have a tremendous responsibility and they know that. To use those funds wisely and with discretion to be able to share the gospel with as, as many people as we possibly can. But I am asking this question in light of 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. If God were suddenly removed from the picture, would we do anything differently down at church? Think about that for a moment. If God somehow suddenly went out of existence, would we change the way we operate the church? And I'd like to believe that the answer to that would be an emphatic yes. Obviously we would. But any unbeliever can, can make a purchase if he knows that he has the money for that purchase in his pocket. And even if he knows that he's going to have the money when the payments come due, even though it may not be in his bank account right now, he, he can make a purchase based on that information. But, but again, we have to ask ourselves, am I really walking by faith or am I walking by sight? It doesn't take any faith to be able to make a purchase when you know that you already have the money or you're sure that you're going to have the money. Faith comes into the picture. When, for example, in the spiritual dimension, the church sees a real need. For example, it may see a need for for an expanded building or, or, or for some mission work or for some aspect of sharing the gospel with the community and or with the world. And yet we don't have the money for that particular endeavor right now in the bank account, but we go ahead and do it anyway. I have found in my life as a Christian that that's when we're really blessed when we give God room to operate, when we give faith a place to grow. And that's what I'm suggesting by us considering Second Corinthians 5 or 7 this morning. If, if what you see is what you get is the operating policy of the Lord's church, I'm convinced that faith will never grow. There's no room to rely upon God and we don't give faith room to operate. I remember hearing about an elder who one time stood to pray before the congregation, of which he had oversight. And he said, God, please do something this morning in our church that's not in the church bulletin. And I think that uh, most of us can relate to that. We, We want to see God operate. And I'm not talking miraculously. Don't worry. I'm not going to start speaking in tongues. But I'm saying that God is still alive and well. He is still blessing his people. And that he will bless us immensely. If we really do what John 4.35 says, and that is look out to the fields that are white unto harvest. If we will have that consciousness of the souls around us. We'll see people here on Atlanta Highway, not as someone who potentially can cut me off. I'll see them as a soul that will live somewhere in eternity. And when I began to look at people that way. When I began to evaluate the the lives of men and women around us, not as a nuisance or an annoyance, but rather as someone who has the potential of being led to the Lord. And that I have a place in that process that I might be able to speak a word for Jesus. I might be able to give a tract or a book to someone and say, read that please and tell me what you think about it. A a thousand different ways that we can do exactly what Jesus told his disciples to do there in John chapter 4. Now, here's another general principle, and then we're going to move on very quickly back to Genesis chapter 11. In Luke chapter 8 is where, at least in Luke's account, where we find the parable of the soils. And we know that there were four types of soil that Jesus described in that parable. This is one of the rare times when Jesus actually stopped and explained a parable. And that's what he does in verse 11 of Luke chapter 8 where he begins by saying, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Now now think about that for a moment. I know that we all know that. If we didn't know that, I guess we'd probably be doing something else somewhere else this morning rather than sitting in a church building. The seed is, in fact, the word of God. And it has the power and the life in itself. Now, again, you may know that, but I just wanted to remind you of it this morning. The seed has the power and the life within itself it is not dependent necessarily upon the 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 expertise of the person who is planting that seed now that helps all of us need to learn how best to will the sword of the spirit i understand that i agree with that but i want to remind us and myself on a daily basis that god's word has immense power that that is what changes the life That's what transforms the soul. That's what has the ability to lead someone to the foot of the cross where they can have their sins washed away and be added to the Lord's spiritual kingdom. And let me also tell you this. You have to fight good seed to keep it from producing. Have you noticed that? I can grow more grass in the cracks of my driveway than I can grow in my yard. I'm constantly having to to fight that back. And that 's true of good seed as well, and not just weeds. I mean if it 's good seed and you 're planting it in the right kind of heart, the right kind of soil i mean it's going it 's going to have some kind of result and the Bible tells us that so with that in mind, we need to be sowing, and we need to sow a bunch in the fields of the world and I realize also that it 's it's, it's real easy to get obsessed with with the results it 's it's it's very easy for us to think only about the harvest and about leading someone to the point where they're willing to say, I want to be baptized into Christ so that his blood will wash away my sins and I can be a part of his forever family. But we don't need to worry about that so much. The Bible says, Jesus told his early disciples that if you're thinking only about the harvest, if you're thinking only about the results of the process, then you kind of got things turned around. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 6 is where Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, you know the rest, don't you? God gave the increase. God is the one who's responsible for making sure that the results will be there. Our responsibility is to plant the seed in good faith in the hearts of those around us. And Romans 1.16 assures us that it is, in fact, powerful seed. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is God's power to save them that believe, Paul asserted. So you sow the seed of God's word in a person's heart. And you can rest assured that that person will never be the same again. In Isaiah chapter 55, 10 and 11, Isaiah said God's word, once it goes out, will not return unto us void. Now with that in mind, I want to consider four quick principles. And I promise this will be quick from the Genesis 11 passage that was read in your hearing a moment ago. And I also want us, as we consider these verses together this morning, to say that there is absolute dynamite in these verses. And if you've never looked at this passage this way, I hope that you will rethink this passage and, and, and look at it in a way that with your evangelistic glasses on this morning. So that we can see while, while these people were doing something that was, and I want you to know this, I, I, that's why I'm saying it right up front, was diametrically opposed to the will of God. God did not want them building that tower. we need to understand that. But the way that they went about doing it has four principles that will guarantee success in any endeavor. And that's why I say there's dynamite in these verses. If we would come to appreciate the great truths here in Genesis chapter 11, I believe the church would grow. And we would be blessed immensely. God says what will happen if we do these four things. By the way, this is no secret to success. I mean, it's right here for anybody. Black ink on white paper. Anybody can read this passage and say, hey, there's gold in that passage. And, and God said, even of an unworthy endeavor, the building of that tower, watch this very carefully. This is what I want us to lock in on. He said, God himself said, and now nothing will be restrained or withheld from them. It depends on what version you're reading. By the way, the NIV says, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Think about the implications of that for just a moment. And note that God has has never blamed the lack of harvest on the word or on the world, but always on a lack of workers. Pray, therefore, that the Lord will send forth laborers into the field. And so we need to make sure that we're one of those workers that we've even been singing about this morning. And the principles established here in Genesis chapter 11 were not written for the church. They weren't written for God's people of any dispensation for that matter. But they are applicable to anyone who has enough sense to use them. So notice those with me in turn. First of all, as we walk through this passage, first of all, the Bible says that they were one. They were united. Here's what the text says. The Lord said, indeed, the people are one. Want to be successful in an endeavor? That's stage number one. That's criteria number. criterion number one that, that you've got to make sure that you're all on the same page in regards to what you want to do which also begs the question we need to back up a half step and say do we know what it is that we're supposed to be doing do we know what our marching orders are do we understand what the primary responsibility and task of the church is what what the lord has told us to do we all know the great commandment in matthew 22 what do we know about the great commission Do we understand that that applies to us today in 2021 just as much as it did in the first century world? Now, we talk a lot about unity in the church. And, man, I'm glad we do because unity is just that valuable. And God esteems the unity of his people highly. If you don't believe that, reread John chapter 17. So we talk about unity and we want it for the church and we want it for the world, don't we? Uh, some of us are old enough to remember when there was a bumper sticker that was very popular that simply said, envision world peace. Uh, I wasn't very successful in doing that, but I still appreciate the sentiment. If you could just envision world peace, I, I think that everyone in the right mind would like to see that. No more wars, no more conflict among nations, among people. And so Paul says that's, that's imperative for the Lord's church as well. In the seven ones of the Spirit in Ephesians 4, in verse 3, he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul is saying that unity in the church of our Lord is worth working for. That's what the word endeavoring there means. That we need to bend every effort, literally. We need to do what we can to make sure that the Lord's kingdom stays united. That is, we have singleness of purpose. We all are on the same page. We all understand what it is that God wants us to be doing with our lives and with the, with the power of our influence. You know, I was in a sporting goods store one time, and I was looking at some, some uh, climbing rope. And if you were to ask me why, my response would be, I really don't know. But I was looking carefully at the climbing rope, and I noticed, because I have a thing about heights, as I've mentioned to you before, and so the last thing I want to do is to be belayed you know, on a 5,000-foot cliff with a little piece of rope. But, but I got to looking at that rope, probably looking for a sermon illustration, and I noticed that the rope was composed of tiny little threads. Now, I think what they were composed of, that is, the, the properties, the composition of it is, was imported as well. But there was probably a thousand of those tiny little threads that inter, were interwoven that would allow anyone who wanted to climb a mountain or a cliff to be able to hang off the side of a 5,000-foot cliff without any concern whatsoever. You see, because there's strength in numbers, there is power in unity. We all know that when it comes to the, to the physical world. But we need to take that understanding and apply it to the spiritual dimension as well. It really comes down to this. Would you rather be in a bag of marbles or in a bag of grapes? Here's what I mean by that. Marbles can run into each other. They can roll all over each other. They can even be crowded right up against one another in a bag. But when you empty the bag, there's very little evidence that those marbles have even been together. Grapes, on the other hand, when they run into each other and roll all over each other, and when they're crowded up against one another, tend to kind of bleed on one another. You can always tell when one grape has been in close proximity to another grape because there's evidence of that association all over it. And so this morning I'm asking you very simply, are you a marble? Or are you a grape? Now there's sadly there's some Christians that are like marbles. They can come to a place just like we've done this morning, and we can sit elbow to elbow, and we can sing the same songs, pray the same prayers, eat the same Lord's supper table at, at the table, and we and we can leave this place unaffected by our association. For all practical purposes, you would never know that we had been in an assembly of worship. Thankfully, there are more people. I'm convinced more people that are more like grapes. And when we come together and we do all those same things and worship together and pray together and sing together, they come away from that association with evidence on them that they have been together. That's at least a part of what we mean by this concept of, of unity, that, that we, that we are, are changed and transformed in a sense by our association. I know that's true in my life. I'm a better person by having known you and coming here in this place and worshiping with you and singing these wonderful, wonderful songs of gratitude and praise to a loving Heavenly Father. And I'd like to think that you're a better person when you leave this place than when you first walked into this building. I hope you're a grape. I hope that you understand that that power of association, that unity among believers can make a difference in this world, but specifically starting right here in our community takes more than just being together being crammed together you may be sitting elbow to elbow this morning on the pew that you're in but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're united i I can remember when we were living in in atlanta and every now and then we would take marta to go downtown for a game or whatever when that game was over guess what everybody wanted to ride the same marta train back to their respective stations and so you were packed in there like sardines i guarantee you we weren't united but we were together. Just being together physically, close together in a place doesn't necessarily mean that we're, we're united. And, and God says, I want unity for my people. I want everybody to be able to think about uh, our responsibilities, our privileges in the kingdom of Christ, and all of us be on the same page. Real unity takes place when, when, when you become like the people that you're with Over to Acts chapter 4, verse 13, is a perfect example of that. Here's what the Bible says. When when they saw, and we're talking about the enemies of the cross, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. Notice this last statement. And took notice of them that they had been with Jesus. They knew from the way those men behaved that they had been in association with Jesus Christ. And I hope that the world can tell the difference in our lives and our influence based on the same factor. I I hope our association and and our love for and, and our desire to be like Jesus makes an incremental difference as we grow in our Christian faith day by day. So the issue isn't really this morning whether we're black Christians or white Christians. The the issue is, are we grape Christians? Is our association making us better? Are we more united because we're a people of one faith? David said this in Psalm 133 verse 1. I love this passage. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And all you can say to that is amen. Here's a second factor very quickly. They spoke one language. Look at the text. And they all have one language. Again, those are the words of God himself. On the New Testament side of things, Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. And this is the spiritual application of what God said in Genesis 11. Paul wrote, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you all speak the same things, criterion number one, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that's number two, and that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, I I think that's what's referred to back in Genesis chapter 11, is the idea of singleness of purpose. They really wanted to build that tower. They They were reading off the same page. But not only did they have singleness of purpose, but I believe that the one language referred to here in Genesis chapter 11, implies that they were communicating with each other. Remember in that text what stopped the building of the tower when God came down and confused their languages. He stopped the communication and guess what? Immediately the building of the tower stopped. Because you've got to have communication among people in order for any project to be accomplished. That was true in Genesis 11. It's true in 2021 as we seek to continue to build the Lord's kingdom. Somebody has said long ago that you can stir up excitement about any harebrained scheme if you'll just talk it up enough. And I believe that's right. Uh, communication is just that powerful. The pen is mightier than the sword because of the awesome power of words strategically used. So when God confused their communication, the work stopped. That tells us, as we're working in the kingdom of Christ today, that we need to be communicating people. We need to not only be on the same page, we need to be talking about the fact that we're on the same page. We need to be talking about our collective and our mutual and our individual plans. Now, let me ask you this question. It's a rhetorical question, so please don't answer out loud. Do you think everybody in the camp back in Genesis 11 was for this project? Do you think if they just went around and asked for a show of hands, everybody would say, yeah, I think building the tower is really a good idea? I I, I seriously doubt it. You know, in any group of people, you're probably going to find some dissenters and some detractors. You'll find at least a few who will decide that I don't think this is a good idea and I don't want to be a part of it. There are some in every generation who are quick to tell you why even a worthy project won't work. Reminds me of years ago when Brother Dow Flatt stood before an audience at the lectureship program in Freed Hardman and, and, and said in, as his opening statement, Brethren, I want you to know that I'm not as old as I look. I've just been to a lot of business meetings. Well, if you've been to any business meetings, you know what that's like. It'll age you. It'll put some age on you. And one of the reasons why is if you've been to, to, to meetings like that at all, there's always someone who thinks everything is a bad idea. Uh, a couple of questions that usually are raised by people of that mentality. Number one, do you have any idea how much this is going to be cost it, we're talking about a building program or adding some classrooms. Or you have any idea how much that will cost? Well, the appropriate answer to that, by the way, is, well, I don't know the exact dollar figure, but I do know it will cost less than it would this time next year. Or do you know how many people, how many workers that that project is going to take? Well, if I've read the New Testament correctly, work is not a vice, it's a virtue. And hard work on the part of the members is one of the things that helps us to grow and to expand and become more like Jesus day by day. But, but these folks don't, didn't let, let the detractors stop them because, again, they, they thought it was a good idea to build, to build that tower. It was something they really wanted to do. And they went about it with single-mindedness of purpose. Number three was imagination. I'm reading from the New King James now where the text says, Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. The old King James reads like this, now nothing will be restrained from them that they have imagined to do. So the third qualifier for accomplishing any project, whether it was unworthy as in Genesis 11 or it's worthy and us trying to carry the gospel to the world, is to make sure that we have the proper vision in mind. How very important that is to any work. We're not really talking about imagining in the sense of wishful thinking or daydreaming. That's what we normally think of when we hear imagining. We're thinking more of the concept of imaging or envisioning. Getting in our minds and in our our hearts what it is God wants us to do. It's a where there is no vision, the people perish kind of thing. The, The ability to foresee is what keeps a Christian going through rough spots in his or her life. Isn't that true? I mean if, you, if you're if you going through a real rough patch in your life right now. If, if you can just see no matter how distant the light at the end of the tunnel. If you can see a time when things are going to be better. When the pain will not be quite so intense. Or maybe the emotional anguish will not be quite so great. If you can just see a time in the future. That that can keep you going in the present moment. And the Bible talks about that. In the great faith uh, chapter Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 the writer says by inspiration as he's talking about all of those that have been described in in, in in others even among the Israelite camp in particular who had lived faithfully before God the writer then says these all died in faith not having received the promises now watch this carefully not having received the promises but having seen them afar off Wait a minute, you just said they hadn't seen the promises. And now you're telling me but they saw them afar off. They were seeing them through the eye of faith. They weren't seeing them in physical reality, material reality. They were seeing it through the eye of faith, and that's why this passage is in the Bible. And then it goes on to say, and were persuaded or convinced of them and embraced them. So they're embracing that which they, at the present moment, cannot see and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. What the mind of man can conceive and the heart of man can believe, man can achieve. Because that's exactly how God has wired us. He made us that way. Anything ever accomplished for good or ill first began as a burning idea in someone's mind. It began as their magnificent obsession. And even the Bible teaches that you've got to first see it up here in the the mind before you can ever have it out there in reality. You've got to have it in the heart before you'll ever have it in the hand. The pessimist says, I believe it when I see it. The optimist says, I'll see it when I believe it. These folks in Genesis 11 built a tower because they dared to dream. Fourthly and finally, they began the job. The text says, and this, God says, is speaking again. And this they began to do. And that's one of the things that we need to bear in mind when we are trying to accomplish anything for God. It is axiomatic that a job begun is half done. Some of us have heard that saying our entire lives. And it really is true. It's overcoming the inertia of motionlessness that is usually the most difficult part of any project. That is just getting off of our seats and, and getting moving and getting going in the right direction and actually starting whatever it is that we have in mind that we want to accomplish. You know, long-distance uh, long runners understand that. They know that the most difficult distance in running every day is from the front door to the, to the road. It's getting started. Once you get started, it's a lot easier. So we need in the kingdom of Christ to plan the work and work the plan. Some churches... And I mean this as kindly as I know how. Some churches are great on paper because they're long on plans, but, but, but they're short on implementation. They have the right aim, they just never pull the trigger. Even if you're on the right road, you'll get run over if you just sit there. Isn't that true? I saw a book once that had this title on the cover, How to Grow the Church. I was in a religious bookstore, saw that, that book, saw the title, and I thought, boy, that's, that's got to be fascinating reading. And so I opened it and flipped through the pages, and every page was blank except one. And in 72-point font, it said this, go to work. That is the formula for success, isn't it? It's getting going. It's not just sitting around a table and planning the work and planning the work and planning the work. Is actually implementing the plans and doing what God has called upon us to do. Husbands and wives may not agree on every little point, but you know what? If they're committed to each other and they work together, they're going to have a great family. And all brethren don't see everything just alike, but if they commit themselves to God's book, to his plan, to the Lord's mission, I am 100% convinced that the Lord's work will prosper. And I don't mean in some distant land, I mean also right here at the University Church of Christ. The oft-told story is of an older woman who was being shown through the splendiferous Westminster Abbey uh, in a guided tour along with a group of other tourists And each tourist was soaking in the beauty of the surroundings, the stained glass windows, the ornate frescoes, the architectural genius, just the general grandeur of that edifice. And the guide was carefully pointing out each object of interest. He provided the ages of many of the furnishings and even supplied the appraised cost of some of the items that were sitting there in in, in that abbey. And after the guide had finished his spiel, that woman raised her hand and asked this question. But have there been any souls saved here lately? And I'm suggesting for your consideration this morning that that ought to be the burning question in our hearts as well. Isn't how many good works we're doing? How many ministries do we have? How many deacons do we have in charge of those ministries? The question is, have there been any souls saved here lately? What are we doing to share the gospel with the world, starting with our own Jerusalem? I'm talking about right here in Montgomery, Alabama. That's the bottom line. We can be engaged in many worthy projects. And as we've seen here in Genesis chapter 11, 1 through 6, if we meet those four criteria, then we, we can't accomplish the task at hand. But the question that I want us to ask ourselves is, have there been any souls saved here lately? And what are we doing to lead others to Christ? Maybe this morning, that's a decision, a very personal decision that you need to make at this moment in your life. You've never yet turned your life over to the Lord and said, I want to follow in his footsteps, I want to be his child, and I want to be a part of his eternal kingdom. And this morning, if you're not a child of God, you can, you can do that by repenting of every one of your past sins, committing your life to doing better from now on, say, I'm not going to live that way anymore, confessing Jesus as God's son, we would be delighted to baptize you into Christ. You can walk out of this place as a redeemed individual, All of your sins have been washed away. You have been emancipated from the bondage of sin in your life, and you can do that right now while we stand and while we sing.